everyone, and welcome back to The Whole Tooth, a podcast all about sharks, rays, and their underwater habitat, brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. Now, we've been on a little break for the last month. Our team has been super busy with Shark Week and plans for Wild Screen and Sharks International. And I've actually been out at sea for the last seven weeks, working with my favourite species, the Baskin Shark, which was super fun. But this episode is not about Baskin Sharks. This episode is all about a different filter feeder. We are celebrating the largest species of shark on the planet, the whale shark, because yesterday was International Whale Shark Day. And I cannot think of two better people to be celebrating with than Jonathan and Sophia Green of the Galapagos Whale Shark Project. Since gaining a degree in geology at North London University, Jonathan travelled the world in search of a job that would allow him to spend much of his time underwater, which I'm sure a lot of us would love to do. By a stroke of luck, he ended up as a guide and dive master for the Galapagos National Park and Marine Reserve, and he has since worked there for three decades, logging several thousand dives in those waters. He started the Galapagos Whale Shark Project after encountering them for the first time on a dive at the Arch of Darwin. And after speaking with the community, he realised that there was actually very little known about the Galapagos population. And so he started to do some investigating of his own. Jonathan realised that almost all the whale sharks he encountered were actually female. And still, three decades later, almost 99.8% of the individuals seen there are female. His curiosity to find out why developed into the Galapagos Whale Shark Project in 2005, which has aimed to find out more about these incredible animals ever since. In 2017, Jonathan's daughter Sophia joined the team after completing her degree in marine biology, and she is now an investigator and data analysis for the project. She has just completed her master's degree in marine biological resources, during which she studied the movements and diving behaviours of the Galapagos whale sharks from satellite tags that she and the team had deployed. She has also worked on a number of projects, including marine invasive species, marine plastics and turtle conservation. And like Jonathan, she has a ton of experience diving in the Galapagos and understanding its ecology. The Galapagos Whale Shark Project was featured on Blue Planet 2, so you might know about them already. And in 2020, they became Save Our Seas project leaders on secrets of the whale sharks of the Galapagos Marine Reserve. Project which aims to find out why so many females appear at certain sites and to generally gain more information on their natural history. We talk about all of this and more in this episode. Jonathan and Sophia are so incredibly experienced and knowledgeable that I could have listened to their stories all day. We talk about Sophia's childhood freediving with sharks with her father, Jonathan's journey to starting the project, and of course, all the incredible research that they do, which includes taking ultrasounds and blood samples from whale sharks as they swim underwater, which is a pretty amazing feat. It's it's really, really cool to hear them talk about it and talk about how it's done. We also answer some of your questions about whale sharks. Uh, we asked a little while ago for you to send them in, so thank you to everybody who wrote in with a question. I think we got through them all, but 
This is such a great episode and I'm so excited for you to hear it. So without further ado, grab your gear, your satellite tags and your ultrasound equipment and let's head to the Galapagos and dive into our episode. Jonathan and Sophia, hello and welcome to the Whole Tooth podcast. Thank you so much. It's excellent to be here and talk about whale sharks with you today. Thanks very much, Ida. It's good to be here. Yes, yes, I am so excited. I'm so glad that you could both join us. And this, we were recording this in June um, because of fieldwork and things like that. But when this episode has come out, it will be the day after International Whale Shark Day. And I cannot think of two better people to have on to celebrate the world's biggest fish or biggest species of shark. I'm so excited to talk about them and talk about your work in the Galapagos as well. Um, But before we get into that, I have a question that I ask every single guest that comes onto this podcast. And that is, what is your most memorable experience in the ocean? And I have learned from all of our guests previously that this is a really hard question to answer for people who have spent a lot of their time in the ocean. Um, So I do apologise. But Jonathan, I will come to you first on this one. Yeah, that is that is a tough one. I think the moment that you first enter an ocean environment uh, with a mask on, it's literally as if you're leaving this planet. So I think everything from then is is an amazing experience. It's difficult to say specifically this was the moment that um, that I can I can remember or will remember for the for the rest of my life. I think one of my dreams when I was was growing up, I grew up like many people of, of my generation with Jacques Cousteau and his underwater adventures and that voice in the background, you know, we dived into the blue and, uh, you know, the, the, the amazing adventures. And I wanted to, to replicate that kind of experience. And I'd seen submersibles and for me, it was obviously something that I, I never, never in a lifetime would have expected I would have the opportunity to, to experience. But we were lucky enough to work with the project and the Blue Planet team uh, just a couple of years ago before Blue Planet 2 came out and they had of course the vessel that was used in various different parts around the world and I had the opportunity to do a number of dives in uh, the submersible, in both submersibles that they carried on board and one of them was a yellow submersible and I remember sitting at about a hundred meters depth on the, the, just below Darwin's Arch and we could actually stream (laughs) music from the mothership and I turned to the pilot and I said is it possible that you can get, you know, the Beatles? And he said, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you want. So we, <laughs> so we listened to the Yellow Submarine at a depth of a, we all live in a Yellow Submarine, at a depth of 100 metres <laughs> below Darwin's Arch. So I don't know if that was the most memorable occasion, but I think the whole experience of diving in a submersible and, and being in this, this world where you could just sort of, you felt you were still in your own environment but you were in an environment that was as strange as outer space. And that, for me, is certainly one of the things that I most enjoyed um, having in, in, in my life. I mean, I would definitely say that that's, that that's a memorable experience. Not many of us can say that we've been able to go down in a submersible. Um, I mean, I have so many questions about what it's, what it's like down there, what it's like to experience that sort of 
as you said, sort of outer space kind of experience. So that kind of really is what it's like. Um, but I also love the idea that the that the pilot had had that many requests for the Beatles <laughs> that he almost anticipated what you were going to ask him. <laughs> he he knew exactly what we wanted to listen to. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And I would have absolutely done the same thing. I just just want to put that out there. If if you were in that situation where you're in a yellow submersible under the sea and you can get music sent down there, what else are you going to do? in that situation. I would, I, I would be very surprised yeah. if David Attenborough hadn't made the same request at some point too, because he spent an awful lot of time in that submersible. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope, I really hope that he did. <laughs> but yeah, so t- tell us a little bit about, while I've, while I've got you on the subject, tell us a little bit about what it was like, uh, what it was like to experience uh, diving deep in a submersible. What surprised me was how rapidly it, it darkens. You go past 100 metres and you're, you're getting into the twilight. Um, 150, 200 metres and it goes entirely black. You know, if it's not for the, the spotlights of the submersible, you don't see, um, you, you just don't see anything out there except for the bioluminescence of certain species, which of course is extraordinary itself. I think the fact that you, you're, you're so removed from anything that you've experienced or lived on the planet, on the surface of the planet, because we can live our entire lives walking around um, above water, it was very difficult to, to comprehend everything that I was seeing, experiencing, feeling. Uh, and it really was. It was, like a, it was like an experience of going off this planet and in, into you know, deep outer space. Yeah. Wow! Oh, what an experience to have. Um, yeah, I can't imagine. It must feel very sort of like an out of body experience. Like actually, you take a moment when you're down there, and you have to pinch yourself and sort of being like, "Am I actually here? Am I actually living this?" Such such a cool experience. Um, and of course, Sophia, you've you've spent your entire life, uh, you know, in the oceans. You've had the the privilege of being able to do that with your dad as well, who introduced you to the oceans too. And I imagine. This question is probably is probably really hard for you too to try and pick what your most memorable experience in the ocean is. Um, but yeah, if you can, if you can tell us what is your most memorable experience in the ocean. <laughs> um, it's definitely been um, such a privilege to grow up with the ocean as part of my life. Thanks to what my dad and what my mom does, like what they both do. Um, so it's, it is really hard to pick a single moment. Um, but I know that there's one that's ingrained in my mind that I think I, I was like, almost like, okay, I can die peacefully, you know, now, now the, the ocean can take me. Um, and it was when we were, um, diving up in the North and we were doing our whale shark studies and we're taking blood samples and we can take the blood samples either from the pectoral fin of the whale shark or the pelvic fin of the whale shark. And I was approaching this whale shark. She was swimming very softly around 20 meters. Um, and I approached her very gently from the side and I became part of her slipstream as I placed myself right above her pectoral fin to see if I could draw blood. And as I placed myself there, I, I didn't have to kick hard anymore. I was part of the movement with her and I was just swimming in the ocean with her. And I start hearing all these whistles and clicks at the same time. And I'm like, wait, this is not the whale shark. And I look up from, from I was looking down at her pectoral fin, seeing where, where to draw blood from. And I look up and these dolphins join the face of the whale shark and start bow riding the whale shark and playing around her. 
as she and I swam together in one unit, it was just the most amazing experience. You know, I, I felt so at peace and oh, my heart just filled with joy. I was so, so excited. It was one of the most beautiful moments that I've, I've experienced in the ocean for sure. See, I said when we started this podcast that I was going to listen to what you guys were saying about the Galapagos and about your experiences in the ocean and how amazing they are. And I would be incredibly jealous. And I am right now. That sounds absolutely insane and just such a beautiful, beautiful experience. And I had no idea that because obviously you get dolphins bow riding boats. I had no idea that they would do that with sharks. That's absolutely mental it's a crazy behavior we've we've cited and they seem to be doing it just for fun and, and the whale shark i guess enjoys the company for a little while and the dolphins just play around it's it's absolutely wild to see underwater <laughs> it is yeah and you were part of that you were part of that as well and that's just like a testament to how experienced you are in the water that the whale shark was just like yeah i'm happy with this with this person to come along and you know, chill out with me and swim alongside me and try and take bloods as well, which we're going to get into this a little bit later on. I, I need to know how you, how you do this while swimming alongside a, a shark as well. Um, just crazy, crazy skills. But I mean, I think we're, we're kind of, we're kind of already talking about this, but Sophia, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna carry on uh, chatting with you because uh, like like you said, your love for the ocean started at a really, really young age. Um, and I'm just interested to know, you know, how did your interest in sharks kind of really, really begin? Um, it was almost innate, I guess. With my dad's work guiding around the Galapagos Islands, it was one of my earliest memories. We were swimming um, around Isabella Island and there's a small shark pool basically it's a it's a lava tunnel that has water coming in from the ocean where the white tip reef sharks um just sleep on the sides of this lava tunnel and i remember my dad used to take us uh swimming and he would make us tap his shoulder we would take a deep breath of air and he would swim down and we would do a bit of a free dive underneath uh the surface of the ocean and i remember we did that in this pond and all these sharks came out from the sides of the lava tunnel and started surrounding us and having never been taught to fear them, it was just simply one of the most beautiful experiences. And it must I must have been around three, four years old, and it's just a memory that's ingrained in my brain. And from that day, I just saw sharks as this beautiful, graceful, powerful creature. And since then, I decided, I mean, they just became a part of my life, and I couldn't think of a better animal to study um, and work with for the conservation of our oceans. Oh, that's so, that's so special. And also, you know, and well, I mean, I'm only talking from my experience having grown up in Scotland in the, in the UK. And, but to me, that's quite a unique experience because we're always taught or a lot of us are taught from a young age to fear sharks. And, and, and my family had a very different reaction when I said I was going to be, you know, working with sharks. So that's really, really special. Imagine having that as your playground, white tip reef sharks. How cool. How did it come about that you started to to work with whale sharks and you started, I mean, you started the Galapagos Whale Shark Project. So, so how did that all come about? Uh, well, that would be, I think, after my first experience, my first encounter with a whale shark. I knew that they... Uh, 
passed through and there were occasional visitors to the Galapagos. But I was diving up in Darwin Island. The currents can be very, very strong. And we were doing a dive with a group of, of German divers, all very experienced. But we were washed away from the, um, the actual arch, the platform itself, and out into more open ocean and into an area that we didn't usually dive. I wasn't too concerned because I knew that we had surface uh, marker boys and the, the, the Zodiacs were following us on the surface and so on. So we were doing a safety stop and out of the blue came, came a whale shark. And I knew what it was, but I just couldn't believe the immensity. There's this, just this huge animal that was just swimming very, very slowly, placidly towards us. Um, the size of a single-decker bus, you know, 15 meters, 45 feet long plus. And it just swam just below us. I think it was sort of aware of our, our presence in the water, but didn't change its behavior. Swam, swam below us and then just disappeared. And it, and it was almost like magic. An animal that size can disappear so rapidly. So obviously the camouflage of the spots is very, very effective in the, in the underwater world. And it, it, was, it was the encounter, of course, that, that, again, it was a pivotal moment. And I just thought, that's the most incredible animal and, and that I've ever encountered. So I went back to Puerta Llora and started asking colleagues and my peers and friends and anybody I could, so what are the whale sharks doing here? Where do they come from? Where do they go? Where are they feeding? Uh, what about the birthing? Because they're, they're ovoviviparous, so they're giving birth to live, live young, so internal incubation, a live pup is born. So where are the pups being born? Uh, why is it that we don't see pups here? Uh, and a whole series of questions, and every single question was answered by some of the most eminent marine scientists of, of, of that time, uh, just about anyone I could talk to around the world, the answer was always, well, we don't know. And I thought, well, how can it be that we don't know anything about an animal which is, A, uh, prehistoric, because they've been around for you know 70 million years uh, plus, probably. So they predate the, the great extinction of the, the dinosaurs. Um, one of the greatest ocean travelers, they exist in all of the oceans of the, of the world, and they've now actually just been found also in the Mediterranean Sea as well. So literally every big body of water around the planet has whale sharks in it, but we know nothing about them, we know nothing about their natural history. So on the base, on the back of that, I decided to create a small sort of tick um, document where, you know, where did you see it, what was it doing, what was the depth, what was the water temperature, visibility, currents and so on. And I handed it out to a bunch of my fellow dive masters and guides in Galapagos at the time. And I said, would you mind helping with this? And you can drop them off at the Darwin station uh, as a central point, you know, just fill them in. And I started getting back some, some, uh, some, you know, some, some information, basic data, but very quickly realized that we needed to take it to another level. The technology that, uh, that we were using was not good enough. So we needed satellite tags. We needed to look more at uh, their movements on a broader scale, so regional and global. So we needed to use techniques like photo identification, which was in its infancy at the time. Uh, you know, we're talking 2000, well, no, 1995 to 2000, more or less, is when this was, was um, first happening. And in 2005, I then spoke to a marine scientist from the Darwin Station, uh, Dr. Alex Hearn. And he said, well, it's a fantastic project. Why don't we, we actually set it up as a more formal project? So that's what we did. And that was when the Galapagos Whale Shark Project was actually born. Um, it took us another uh, five years or more to actually get the funding that we needed to kickstart it and start the science that was the basis for the uh, project that we were running today. But that's really, that's really cool to know that that's how it came about, because I think we get a lot of, uh, you know, 
aspiring marine scientists or marine conservationists that listen to this podcast and I think it's really interesting to hear how different projects set up so you know it can just start from a curiosity from an idea from you know that kind of that, that very because science is all about that is, is about having that initial curiosity and want, wanting to answer that question um, and it doesn't essentially have to be funded you know right from the beginning the funding can come later on once you've you know, established what it is that you want to do. Um, and so if you, you know, if you want, if you have that idea, if you're curious about something, then, you know, just begin, just start, just start, you know, start small, start collecting data and you never know where it might end up. And we will talk about what your project is doing now and how that's developed and, and, and what you're finding with the whale sharks. Um, but before we kind of get into that, I wanted to ask, Sophia, about your, the same sort of question to you about your career progression and your journey, because, you know, you've, you, you started as a member of the team and then you've gone on to develop your own, uh, your own questions and your own research. So I just wanted to ask you about that. So what did your, what did your kind of career journey look like and how did you get to be where you are now studying diving behavior in whale sharks? So after uh, finishing my bachelor's degree in biology, I knew I wanted to return to Galapagos. It was always kind of my goal to return and work for the conservation of the islands. I knew I wanted to train myself properly to become kind of a more valuable member in this community. And um, initially, I wasn't sure exactly how I wanted to apply um, my degree. I knew I wanted to focus on conservation um, but I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. And when I first arrived to the islands, uh, I got a job as a tutor of the naturalist guide um, course. And so I started working with them and that was a fun five month job. And we, we touched upon different subjects and ocean, ocean, an ocean side, a terrestrial side. And just the ocean side always attracted me more, maybe because of the influence I had growing up. I was like, okay, this is beautiful. And to see the connectivity that the oceans have with the land and to see that they're not disconnected and that by working in ocean conservation, you're actually working towards planetary conservation. I thought, well, this is, this is what I want to focus on. I want to work in marine conservation. And um, after I left, the, I finished that job. I was looking around, I was, I was going around town, literally walking around with my CV in hand, going to all the NGOs being like, hey, do you have a spot for me? And I, I knocked on a few doors and turned in my CV. And um, luckily, I received a phone call from the Charles Darwin Foundation. And they said, hey, we have a spot open for a volunteer in our marine department. We need somebody to work in marine invasive species. So I was like, okay, I, you know, I've never really thought of myself working in that um, area in particular, but I'll, I'll do it. So I started working in the Marine Invasive Species um, Lab with an amazing, amazing um, project leader. And uh, she was very much about helping women grow in the science field. So she started kind of um, helping me develop my diving skills and giving me all the opportunities that were possible. And in the middle of all of that, my dad had an expedition with the Whale Shark Project. And I had been hearing about the Whale Shark Project for years. You know, my dad would come back home with all these amazing stories. And I was like, oh my God, like this sounds amazing. And he had an expedition. And that year, somebody couldn't make it. And he says, hey, do you want to come on board? And I was like, well, yes, absolutely. I asked my boss and she said, yes, of course, you can take two weeks off. But my dad said, you have to have a good diving level. We're going to the north. The north of Galapagos has strong currents. So train yourself. So I remember for the month before the first expedition, 
I just went diving every single weekend. I was in the water as often as possible. I was, I was like, I need to train. I didn't have that much dive experience initially. So I was like, I need to train. And then the date arrived and we went up to Darwin Island. And I remember seeing my first whale shark and it must have been one of the most amazing experiences ever. Just as my dad says, it's like magic. A huge animal appears out of nowhere. You're just kind of twirling around, looking around in the blue, and suddenly this massive animal is just right in front of you. And it's huge, and it makes you feel so tiny, and it makes you realize just how much is out there in the ocean and in the world. And I just remember feeling this awe, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is a beautiful, beautiful animal. And then the more I worked with the project as a volunteer initially, the more I saw that the, the whale shark is a very important species ecologically and economically. So it's, it's so important for the world, the ocean's health, and then it's important for humans, um, a coastal community's economy. So I thought, this is beautiful. I, I'd be working towards the conservation of this endangered species, but I'd be working towards more. This is an ocean ambassador, and by protecting the whale shark, we're protecting so much more. So that's why I thought, okay, I'll, I'll keep working in the Marine Invasive Species Lab. When these annual expeditions come to be, I participated in them. And then I decided I wanted to, to become a bit more involved in the project. So I went out and got my master's degree in marine biology and came back and thought, okay, now I want to dedicate myself full time. We had 10 years of data. We had all this information that needed to be analyzed. And I thought, okay, I want to I want to start looking into this um, and that's how I became a full team member in the Galapagos Whale Shark Project and that's where I am now. Yeah, oh my goodness. Um, I mean, a couple of things that I want to pick up on there, um, especially as we're talking about, you know, early career researchers and people just, you know, finding their feet um, is not to be scared to do what you did and, you know, go to as many different organisations and, and, and different people and ask, you know, for experience or ask to volunteer. Um, you know, there's, there's, that's a really, really good thing to do when you're trying to get that experience. Um, and, and, and I love that you did that. And also, it's so cool that you're able to work for the Galapagos Whale Shark Project now and be able to you know, answer the questions that you're really, really interested in. I think that's 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 hugely, hugely inspiring for people to, to hear. Um, and we're going to talk about, you know, what you're finding as we as we get through this podcast episode. Um, so I want I was interested. This is a question to, to, to both of you now. Um, what research are you carrying out with the project? Um, so I know, Sophia, you're, you're asking questions about diving behavior. Um, uh, can you can you elaborate on that a little bit? Of course. Uh, so what we know about whale sharks is very limited. We know less about them than of what we than what we don't know about them. And one of these enigmas is their diving behavior. We know that they can reach up to one thousand nine hundred twenty eight meters deep, uh, but that's just the record uh, that we have from the technology that we have available now. So that's a technological limitation that we have. We don't really know how deep they dive, the true depth that they can reach, and what they're doing at these uh, incredible depths. Because what would a whale shark uh, be doing at two kilometers under the surface of the ocean? So I decided to ask a few questions about that. And with the splash tags, we started looking at the environmental conditions that would probably cause them to be diving. Um, so we were looking at sea surface temperatures and lunar phases and chlorophyll availability to kind of see what may cause them to dive at 
to these depths and maybe even further down. Um, so for my master's thesis, we um, did this analysis. Um, unfortunately, because of the cost of the tags, we only managed to have, I think it was five animals tracked with the very specific tags that would show us both horizontal and um, vertical movement to be able to correlate both with the exact geolocation to then include the, the environmental variables. Uh, but we saw that what influenced them the most is the sea surface temperature. And um, sea surface temperature shows us that sometimes they'll dive to warm up or sometimes they'll dive to cool down. And their metabolism is very much regulated by their diving behavior. Um, so we saw that in the areas around the Galapagos Islands, they were doing extreme deep dives. Whereas when they went off to the coast of Peru, where we used to believe that they were doing deep dives because this is where we lost transmission of a lot of our tags, they were actually not diving deep at all. They would never surpass 300 meters. So it was interesting to see that in areas with high productivity and cooler sea surface temperatures, they would never dive deep. Whereas in warmer waters and in areas with less productivity, they're diving deeper. So this started a new question that is, are they maybe feeding at depth? because we know that we never see them feeding at the surface in the Galapagos. So are they fasting or are they actually feeding on a different species when they're in this area of the ocean? So hopefully that's something that we're going to answer in the next couple of years. We're going to be doing a lot of stable isotope analysis to see if they may actually be feeding at mesopelagic depths. Mm, that's super interesting about whale sharks. Like I, I didn't realise that they... So is, is there a reason why they're not feeding when they're at the surface? So my whale shark knowledge is quite, uh, in its infancy, I'm only just being introduced to the world of whale sharks. So excuse me if that's a silly question, but is there a reason why they're not feeding uh, at the surface? I think that they, they may well be feeding in certain areas. Uh, you've got to remember that we're very limited in our observations. So uh, we can't say definitively, no, they're not feeding at the surface in Galapagos. There have been observations of feeding whale sharks in other areas of higher productivity. One of the things which is very unique about the Galapagos is that you can divide it into four very separate ecological zones. So you've got a, a, a temperate, a subtropical, a tropical, uh, subtemperate areas, depending on the sea surface temperatures, depending on the oceanic currents that are affecting those specific areas. So with the warmer waters that are flooding in from the north, from the Panama, Central America area, the moment that those hit the colder currents, the, the Cromwell and the Humboldt, of course the Humboldt coming up the coastal areas of uh, Chile, Peru, um, Ecuador, and then coming out on the equator, the moment that the cold waters from the south hit the, the, the warmer waters from the north, you get these massive explosions of, um, uh, of uh, phyto and then of course zooplankton. So productivity is very, very much higher in certain areas. So it's possible that within the Galapagos Islands, um, there are areas of extreme high productivity and then extreme low productivity. One of the things that we're looking at is how whale sharks might be moving nutrients around the oceans. So that's another thing we're looking at, and that's associated with, uh, you know, that, that has um, connotations or effects on, on uh, carbon exchange, on climate, uh, you know, future climate. Um, changes and so on and so forth. Um, so it is possible that they're feeding in certain areas on the surface in Galapagos, but in areas of low productivity, like Darwin, which is our study area, they may well be feeding down a much greater depth. However, there's a, another variable that we need to look at, and that is that 99.8% of all the sightings made over the last 30 years, recorded sightings, have been of female whale sharks. 
and of those between 95 and 97% are adults. So when you get a slew uh, population, it's for very, very specific reasons. Often uh, it's associated with behavior. So you might get leks with certain bird species, for example, where all of the males will be together displaying in one area, but the females are present in the same habitat, in the same uh, basic area. This is not what is happening up in Darwin. When we also started looking, and Sophie was uh, sort of pioneered this work just recently in March of, uh, of this year, um, we have identified other aggregations in the Galapagos at different times of the year during the hot season, but further south where the waters tend to be slightly cooler and the productivity higher. So we thought, well, maybe that's the area where the males are and that might be the area where they're mating because nobody knows where they're mating in all of the oceans of the world. There have been some indicators that they might be meeting and mating in Santa Elena in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, but that probably doesn't account for where the Pacific populations are, are, are mating. So this begs this enormous question, where are the males? Are they in Galapagos? Are they present? Are they absent? Are we not seeing them? Because we're working um, primarily up in, in Darwin Island. So Sophie and a team went out in March and they were able to tag uh, five whale sharks, but once again, they're all females. <laughs> so <laughs> we still have this question, what are they doing in Galapagos? If they're feeding, why are we only seeing then the females? And is there a reason, a specific reason that the females are going to Galapagos? Is Galapagos the destination, or is it a waypoint along the trail? So is that simply a place that they're going to uh, to get somewhere? But if they're going somewhere, where is the somewhere that they're going to? Um, so, you know, it, all of our observations give us data, they give us information, they answer some questions, but they literally open up, a, you know, a, a, a new series of questions that we're trying to, trying to answer. Um, so I'm not sure if that answers the, the initial question. I might have gone off at a tangent. No, yeah. But, uh, yeah, but well, I was just asking what kind of research questions are you asking? And and yeah, you've both answered that really well. And of course, the 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 stuff about the, the, the fact that you, um, that the kind of female, the exclusively female populations that you find around the Galapagos, that is part of the Save Our Seas funded project. That, they, that you are running, which is uh, Secrets of the Whale Sharks in the Galapagos Marine Reserve, which sounds so interesting and intriguing. Um, but I, So I know you don't have answers to this yet, and I know it's bringing up more questions, but what theories, what theories do you have as to why you are only seeing females? Because that's, well, not only seeing females, but there are, you know, ex, you know exclusively populations of females that you are seeing around the Galapagos, are there any theories as to why that might be? I think that uh, what you have to look at is what we, what we absolutely know. And what we absolutely know is the majority of the animals we're observing are females. It doesn't necessarily mean the males are not there, we're just not, we're just not seeing them. However, uh, with that level of, of um, percentage of females in a population, it would seem likely that there is a specific reason for the females to go there. It's not associated with feeding as far as we can see because we don't observe general feeding behavior. It also seems that they have um, relatively um, hollow abdomens, so that might indicate that they haven't necessarily been feeding recently. So when you get a, um, a big population slew like that, it would have to be for something specific that is advantageous, advantageous to the females. So if they're giving birth, and that is perhaps the only hypothesis that we can come up with right now, if they're giving birth, then where exactly are they giving birth? 
and why would they give birth at somewhere like Darwin on the Galapagos platform? The general train of thought right now, which is accepted by the scientific community, the shark community, that are studying different species of sharks, but also specifically whale sharks, is that nurseries would be pelagic. But again, we don't have any absolute data which would indicate that this is, this is also true. We do have data from pelagic fisheries. Uh, obviously, the fishing, the industrial fisheries, tend to avoid areas with known rocks, rocky reefs, outcrops, submarine um, mounts and so on, because if the fishing gear gets entangled in the rocks, they have very, very high um, losses of, uh, of equipment. We're talking hundreds of thousands of, of dollars. So they tend to fish all of the, uh, the waters in the pelagic areas. We suspected that bycatch of, of uh, neonate whale sharks, baby whale sharks, would be very, very high. But we discovered, when we finally accessed information of the tuna fishing fleets in the tropical eastern Pacific, in the northern eastern Pacific, that the bycatch appears to be fairly low, which is good news. It's fantastic news, in fact. But it would also indicate that there aren't that many neonates out in pelagic areas. So perhaps the nurseries aren't pelagic. Perhaps they're inshore or on rocky platforms. So the Galapagos would provide an area of some 100,000 square kilometers of submerged rocky platform that comes up from the, the, the massive depths of the ocean. So the young neonates probably can't withstand very, very cold sea, uh, sea temperatures. Uh, the thermal shock might be just too much. So if the whale sharks are giving birth, if they're giving birth on the surface, we'd probably see them. And we'd see the babies, and we'd see them in their formative years until they reach maybe five meters long, four to five meters long, which is when generally around the world we start seeing whale sharks. We're not seeing whale sharks that are, that are generally smaller than that. So where are they for the first years of life? Because we know they're almost certainly born around about 60 to 80 centimeters more or less in length. So where are these baby whale sharks being born and where are they living for their first years of life? Platforms like the Galapagos platform would provide an ideal or, or an almost perfect uh, conditions for birthing of whale sharks. Something else which always, um, for me, provokes interest is if you look at behavior, if you look at genetic throwback, and we're talking about a very, very basic and ancient species here, all of the other um, members of the family, the rectolobiformes, are, are um, sedentary, they're, they're, they're bottom dwellers. The only one which is pelagic is the whale shark. So you've got the carpet shark in Australia and Indonesia, for example. Um, they're bottom dwelling. Could it be that the neonates are actually epibenthic, so bottom dwelling for the first months or years of their life? Could it be that if they're living on a substrate on the bottom, they're protected from so many other species? Because a large uh, neonate, you know, a sort of 60 to 80 centimeter neonate, would make a lovely snack for just about anything in the ocean, from big jacks to any kind of shark species. So they'd just be eaten. They have no defense whatsoever. So if they're in a cryptic environment where they're hidden in plain sight, then it would give them a higher chance of survival. All of this is hypothetical. We haven't been able to, uh, to, to prove it. Part of the work that we're trying to do, and what we were also doing with the, the submersibles, was looking in the deeper waters of the Galapagos to see if we could find any kind of evidence of nurseries. We haven't found it yet. We need to spend more time in, uh, in submersibles looking for the, this kind of activity. So all of these questions are still remain to be answered. But there's a lot of evidence that would indicate that there's something very, very unique about the habitat, the ecosystem, the location of the Galapagos Islands that is very, very necessary for the survival of the species. And that's what we're trying to find out. Mm, yes, because that, that would be my first thought if I saw majority female would be that, it, that the area must have some sort of 
function as either some sort of birthing site or a mating ground or some you know something like that because it makes no sense for them to hang out just you know hang out together just for the purpose of feeding and like you said you're not seeing feeding behaviors either but one of the things that you also do is you um try to test the reproductive state of those adult females um and one of the things that you do to do this is to take blood samples and ultrasounds and obviously like I said we are talking about an enormous animal here a fish that lives in the sea don't quite have the luxury of taking them into a veterinary surgery and you know doing an ultrasound in an environment so you have to do that while you are in the water with these animals and Sophia you kind of talking about it at the beginning of the podcast I'm so interested to know how you carry this out so how you how you do this in the field so we're working with a team of amazing amazing scientists from the okinawa aquarium who are helping us uh with the side of the ultrasounds so they had developed an underwater ultrasound to uh, use on their captive whale sharks in the aquarium but the whale sharks in the aquarium are juveniles so they are using it to t- see their internal organs, study their anatomy, but they're not really able to look at reproduction per se. So in 2017, our team contacted them and said, hey, would you be able to come over? And um, the, these amazing, this amazing team came over and with this huge 17 kilo machine to scan uh, whale sharks underwater, <laughs> And they're the most amazing divers you could ever meet. Um, carrying this heavy equipment, they managed to zoom underwater, catch up with a whale shark, turn on the machine, because it has a code that they have to actually turn on the minute that they see the whale shark, catch up to the whale shark, and then they do different types of scanning around the underside of the whale shark to be able to look at different areas of the body of the whale shark. Um, so that is how they do it. And in 2017, when they first arrived, First of all, it was a La Niña year like this one, and it was just really, really cold. And for the first few days, they didn't actually see any whale sharks. And the day that they finally see a whale shark, you know, they're getting a little desperate. Their their days in the field were running out. They finally see a whale shark. They approach it with the ultrasound, and they find it's an adult male. And the chances here are very, very low. That is literally 1%. (laughs) So they go to scan this adult male. They still did the scan, but of course, (laughs) they weren't exactly looking at what we were hoping to look for. And then when they finally found the adult females, they ran the scans and saw that their ultrasound is actually too weak because the whale sharks have one of the thickest skins of any animal in the animal kingdom. They have about 30 centimeters of skin. So they went back home that year um, and said, okay, we need to make this machine more powerful. And finally managed to return in 2017 with a super powerful machine to be able to run the ultrasounds. And they came back 2018. We had an amazing year, beautiful clear waters, tons of whale shark sightings. And they actually managed to do quite a few scans. And here we were all kind of every single time we'd come out of a dive, we'd all gather around to look at the ultrasound images. Of course, none of us knew what we were looking for because we're not trained in that. So we'd be kind of more looking at the reaction of our, of, our, of our teammates, you know, hoping that they would be like super amazed at something. And we'd gather on this computer and for the ones that they were able to do successful ultrasounds, none of them were pregnant that year. So it was interesting to see that they saw that they're sexually developed, like fully ready to, to reproduce with developed follicles. 
but no pregnancy, no, no fetuses inside um, the, the reproductive system of the whale shark. So it's, it was a small sample size, so we hope to continue this study. It's still a, an un, ongoing study and see if they come back maybe earlier in the season because we were doing the ultrasounds later in the season. So see if they come back earlier in the season to see if we have um, a different result earlier in the season with the whale sharks. Wow, wow. Um, oh, yeah, I... I'm just trying to figure out in my head. So I'm I'm also a I'm also a scuba diver. I'm just trying to figure out in my head just the the skill needed to go down with that really heavy ultrasound machine while also trying to keep up keep up with a whale shark which is, you know, constantly swimming. They're not just, you know, lying there for you <laughs> on their back and you've got to sing along, swim along with them and also, you know, put in the code and look for different areas and things that's just absolutely that's absolute craziness it's fascinating it's kind of like we were talking about earlier is that you've got all these pieces of the jigsaw that you're slowly starting to piece together and figure out what the what the whole picture is it's so 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 utterly fascinating and uh, like I'm sure a lot of the listeners are like me and we're so excited to find out you know what you find out as you start to put that jigsaw jigsaw together um and speaking of the listeners I'm just gonna quickly take us on a little break just to talk ask some some quick fire whale shark questions we've had a few thank you to those who who sent them in um, the first one uh, is quite, this is quite a common question that we got. So we got it from a few people. Um, it's quite a, quite a simple one, which is what do whale sharks eat? Um, and I just want to give a shout out to uh, Overused Teabag, <laughs> which is a brilliant Instagram name. He added onto that question, PS, whale sharks are so cool, which I think we all agree with. They are very, very cool. Um, so yeah, so whoever wants to answer that, what do whale sharks eat? So whale sharks feed on various different things. It depends on where in the ocean they are found, but they are a planktivorous species. So they're filter feeding animals. They have to draw in tons of water uh, and then filtrate that water through their gills to be able to eat this plankton. And um, they weigh um, the, the, what they are generally trying to capture as they take in, in these massive gulps of water are small fish, uh, coral eggs, fish eggs, and then tiny zooplankton. Um, that's what they feed on. And a lot of people are terrified of whale sharks because of that massive, massive mouth of theirs. Uh, but actually the, the throat of a whale shark is the size of a baseball. So they present absolutely zero threat to humans. They're not trying to swallow us. And even if they wanted to, they couldn't. <laughs> Just as a fun fact. So unless you're a tiny, tiny microscopic creature in the ocean, um, yeah, they present no threat to, to you. <laughs> yeah, you don't need to worry unless you're a zooplankton. <laughs> you need to be very small. But um, but yeah, we, we also sort of touched on this at the beginning of the episode, but... Um, Bernadette8640 wanted to know where are whale sharks found? Well we know that they're present in all of the oceans of the world and as I mentioned I think earlier they've just recently been positively identified as being present in the in the Mediterranean so and the Mediterranean of course being a, a, a sea as opposed to an ocean so in every large body of water uh, salt water on the, on the planet they're found now their range is probably between about uh, 40 degrees north 
and 45 degrees south. So putting that in a geographical context, um, they're found, uh, let me see, as far as northern France or northern parts, some, some sort of uh, northerly parts of the Mediterranean areas, and as far south as Tasmania, just off the south of Australia. So short answer, all of the oceans of the world. Something really interesting to add to that is that uh, we're seeing a shift in their distributions as well. And we believe this could be an effect of climate change. With the warming oceans, they're starting to appear in greater numbers in new areas. For instance, they're, started, um, they're being sighted very frequently in the Azores, which would be above the latitudes where they were usually found. And in the southern islands of the Azores in Santa Maria, they actually have uh, a seasonal aggregation now. And we believe that that could be one of the, the effects of climate change with the warming oceans. And what worries us about that is that it's hard for us to protect them already, knowing where they are found. But it's going to be even harder if we don't know where these populations are shifting towards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that just adds in, you know, there's a lot that we still don't know about them. And that just adds in more question marks and that's a further area as well that we have to protect them over it's going to be um both interesting and worrying to see what the effects effects of climate change are kind of on their distribution and then we had two questions that are quite similar um, and sort of lead us nicely on to kind of the last set of questions that i had for you guys um, so the, both of them are about sort of whale sharks uh, being hunted so the first one is why are whale sharks hunted even though they are an endangered species? And then the second one is kind of linked to that. They're both from Young Animal Conservationist on Instagram. Uh, and they ask, is killing a whale shark legal? Well, uh, traditionally they were hunted for things like their skin, uh, the oil. So indigenous populations, coastal communities hunted them in small numbers. Uh, they were used for constructing small coastal going watercraft. Um, They've not been taken really in big numbers for other products like their meat, for example. Of course, yes, coastal communities might have eaten them, but they're, they're, the, uh, the, the, the meat itself is considered of low, low nutritional value. Unfortunately, there was a shift in the 1980s and 1990s, and I think that's with uh, a scarcity of other shark species, is that they became popular in some of the uh, eastern countries in, in parts of Asia as tofu fish. Uh, so they were, they were actually being processed then for uh, fish hamburgers or fish burgers uh, at that time. More recently we've had an increase sadly in the uh, market for and commercialization of products like their fins and their oil. So the fins are primarily of course for shark fin soup which is a very specific um, area of the world. Uh, but also their oil are considered to have uh, properties, medicinal properties. Is it legal to fish them? Most countries now have banned shark fishing of certain species, especially those that are endangered. Whale sharks are on that list of endangered species, so the trafficking of those is illegal. Um, however, we have a very, very large problem, and that is that whale sharks don't tend to stay in small coastal areas or national waters. They roam all of the oceans and spend probably upwards of 90% of their time in international waters. And therein lies the, the biggest problem that we have that faces our oceans right now. The levels of illegal, unreported 
um, and unregulated fisheries where we don't know what's being caught, but we do know that a lot of endangered species are being taken. To give a case, uh, for example, there was a vessel, a Chinese flag vessel that was caught in the Galapagos Reserve in 2017 with some 7,200 shark, sharks on board, most of them dismembered, most of them had been uh, um, finned, and unfortunately in, them, in there, in the hold, was the uh, frozen remains of a juvenile male whale shark. So we know that they're being taken. Are they being targeted? We don't absolutely know. But we know they're certainly bycatch. We know they're probably being taken in larger numbers. So it's not legal, but unfortunately there's an awful lot of unregulated illegal fishing going on in international waters today. And that is something which must be addressed if there's going to be a healthy future to our oceans. end the podcast on a more positive note it's people like yourselves who are you know really really fighting to find that information out to answer those questions to fight for the protections of species like the whale shark um, and really doing science at extremes because working in the Galapagos studying whale sharks in the Galapagos against those diving conditions sounds really gnarly and so much respect for you for doing that because it just yeah it's just really like science at its most extreme um, and it's been so so utterly fascinating to hear you both talk about it and uh, hear about the work that you do um, I could honestly I say this every time I could honestly talk to talk to you both all day but I will not keep you all day <laughs> but just before I let you go I have a few final questions very quick final questions um, and of course at time of recording we are recording in June you're about to head back into the field again um, I just wanted to know what are you hoping to do while you're on this trip we have a number of tasks on this on this specific trip sadly we won't be doing ultrasound because the scientists from Okinawa uh, still have travel restrictions as a sort of lasting result of the, the COVID pandemic which of course has held us back in a number of ways over the last uh, two and a half years um, but we will be doing hopefully some some blood work so blood draw uh, so hopefully Sophie will be doing some of that um, also photo ID we will be tagging a number of sharks we plan to tag hopefully at least eight whale sharks with satellite tags to track them both horizontally and vertically um, and that's it for the moment. I think that's the, those are the main tasks that we have. We will be looking at associated species. Um, uh, but I don't know. Sophie? Um, uh, yeah, just as you say, it's, um, it's unfortunate. This expedition, we did want to focus on the reproductive side of things. We kind of want to close the loop, and that's why we're heading out earlier in the season. Um, but that's why we're kind of focusing this expedition specifically on blood draws. We have started to create a baseline of what we believe the hormone levels are for non-pregnant whale sharks since we have ultrasounds and blood samples from the same shark which was not pregnant. So hopefully we can continue looking at the blood samples to make sure um, that if we see any extreme changes then maybe these whale sharks earlier in the season may be pregnant. Uh, so we'll be focusing a lot on that. And also we love to look, or we're very interested in looking at the lactic acid levels in our blood samples, um, just to see how the diving and the human interaction with whale sharks is affecting the whale sharks. Because we want to make sure that any work we do, because sometimes we are doing a lot, as my dad mentioned earlier, underwater, we want to make sure that we're not stressing these animals. 
So we then take these blood samples back on board, look at the lactic acid levels, and luckily so far we've been able to report that we cause no stress. The whale sharks hardly ever realize we're there. When they do, they kind of just flip around and look at us, and then sometimes we'll do a quick turnaround and leave. Um, so yeah, we'll be looking at that again, making sure that our activities are not causing any difference in, or changes in their behavior. Yeah, and that's that. That is really important aspect of it too, because you know, as scientists, you're doing really, really important work, but you also want to make sure that you're not impacting the whale sharks in any way by by doing that. So that's that's really that's really really nice to know, um, that you are keeping an eye on that and monitoring that at the same time. Um, but sounds sounds like a you've got your hands full on that trip anyway. Uh, interesting to see. Uh, interesting to see how you guys get on. So so yeah, please do let us know. The last two questions are kind of questions that we ask every guest on this podcast. Um, and the, the first one is, if there was one thing that you'd like people to know about sharks, what would it be? So, Sophia, I'll come to you first. So, something I love to tell people about sharks, everyone says, oh, how, do be- how should I behave underwater when I see a shark? And I say, enjoy the experience. It's the most beautiful experience doesn't matter which shark it is don't don't feel like you have to back away don't feel like you have to do any sudden movements watch them swim by they're the most magnificent animal and we are lucky to be humans on this planet still sharing the planet with sharks so enjoy the experience and yeah hopefully you get to see whale sharks and galapagos sharks and blue sharks and as many sharks as possible while you're out in the oceans Oh, that's so lovely. I love that. Yeah, just just enjoy the privilege of being in the water with those animals. Yeah, that's such a that's such a lovely one. Uh, Jonathan, how about you? What would yours be? Well, I'd echo the same thing. The question I always get is, well, isn't that dangerous? And I say, well, actually, the most dangerous part of the whole expedition was the taxi ride to the airport. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) once you're in the ocean, there are very few animals that can cause you any harm. And if if uh, you're not already a diver, uh, or a snorkeler, take the opportunity. If you can't go to outer space, most of us aren't like um, you know the Elon Musk of the world that we don't have uh, the wherewithal to to jump on a spacecraft and, and and go out and leave this planet. The oceans are the same experience. They offer exactly the same. You're leaving this planet. You're leaving the Earth that you know, and you're entering a world which is which is so incredible, so amazing. Uh, the experience will change you forever make the most of it, but also understand that the future of our planet, the future of our species, humanity, and the future of a healthy planet lies in the oceans. If we can't protect the oceans, there is no future for the planet. And we all, all of us, need to play our role in that. Absolutely, absolutely. And that all begins by discovering how amazing the oceans are and getting yourself in the sea even if that's just you know sticking your head in with a with a mask on like it's it's all such a special thing to experience and it really is like getting a little window into a secret world um it's it's a very very special thing to do um and this uh, my final question is one that's a little bit less profound you've both given such lovely answers to that question and i feel a bit daft now asking you this one um but it's my favorite question of the whole podcast and it is if you could be any species of shark whale skate in the world what would you be and why (laughs) so i would a hundred percent be a whale shark but mostly because they enjoy warm waters and I am terrible in cold waters. <laughs> That's another reason why I decided to study the whale shark. Um, 
they they enjoy warm water so do i <laughs> and they they seem to just cruise along the oceans having the most amazing encounters um so yeah i am i envy the whale sharks in that regards for sure <laughs> i yeah I can see that. I can totally understand that. Um, as someone who dives in cold water, it would be nice to to experience nice warm <laughs> tropical waters every so often. And also they get to dive deep. They get to go into the deep sea as well. You get to see everything. Yeah, that's true. I was, I was once, once somebody asked me, wouldn't, wouldn't you like to be a Greenland shark? Because they live incredibly long time. And I thought about it for a few seconds. Oh, oh no, because you sit in cold water for an incredibly long time. So on a parallel to what Sophie says, uh, I think I, I, I'd prefer to be somewhere in the tropics. Um, ray or shark, I don't know. They're, they're both very, very uh, cool, magnificent creatures. I think uh, eagle rays. Uh, if I wasn't going to be a whale shark, then I'd, I'd be an eagle ray. Uh, because I've watched them in these incredibly powerful currents. And they're just with minute little sort of movements of their wings. They just... They just float, they fly, and it seems such a beautiful way to uh, to travel. Yeah, yeah, they are stunning, stunning animals, and they're so graceful underwater. Yeah, they're both both amazing answers, both amazing answers, and yeah, I just think I just think whale sharks are. There's a reason why a lot of people love them. They just are the coolest animals, and and I am so envious that you guys get to work with them all the time. Uh, especially in a place that is as amazing as the Galapagos. Um, but yes, with that, I will stop chewing your ear off um, and picking your brains about whale sharks. But it has been absolutely fantastic to speak to both of you, to learn from both of you. Um, and I'm just so thankful that you could both make it onto the podcast. Thank you guys so much. And happy International Whale Shark Day. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks to everyone who's joined us and uh, yeah, we'll see you out in the oceans. This podcast was brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. It was hosted and edited by me, Isla Hodgson. Our beautiful artwork is by Nicola Poulos and the wonderful jingle that you can hear right now is by David Knight. A huge, huge thank you to Jonathan and Sophia for all their time and knowledge. It was so great to meet you and to hear all about the work that you do. If you're interested in the project, as always, all the links will be in the show notes of this episode on the World of Sharks website. So please, please, please go and check out what they do. And yeah, maybe consider donating because it is International Whale Shark Day. So perfect time to do it and a huge thank you to you at home for listening as always we love hearing from you so if you would like a question answered on the podcast or you just want to say hi please feel free to get in touch by emailing isla at saverseas.com or by following us and messaging us on social media you can find us on at saverseas foundation on instagram and at saverseas on twitter Alrighty, have a jawsome week and we will see you next time.